Since the start of this letter, Paul had been primarily dealing with the problems within the church and the sins of certain individuals. Here on forward, Paul begins to address some of the issues or some of the questions they had written to him about. In this particular chapter, Paul takes on the issue of marriage, singleness, and divorce. Now, however, in these verses we're going to be covering this morning, his focus will be on three topics. On these three topics, sexual responsibility within a marriage, God's gift of marriage and singleness, and what God's Word says about divorce and separation. So whether you're married, whether you're here, you're married, single, divorced, separated, I hope today's passage will give you a clearer understanding of what God's will is for you, regardless of the situation you're in. God desires purity, and in singleness, desires purity in marriage and in singleness. And the best way we can honor His desire is by devoting our heart, mind, and body completely to Him. So before we read, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, you've given us another great morning, um, great time of worship, Lord, and as we get into your word now, I want to continue to worship you, Lord, with our minds, our hearts, with all our, all our being, Lord. This issue now is such a difficult topic, Lord especially those of us that have been through it, that are going through it, that um, may be considering it, or whatever it may be, Lord. Um, Lord, minister to us. Answer our questions we have, Lord. And we just want to honor you at this moment. Fill this room with your spirit. Help us to understand you more Help us to understand these topics more. Fill us with your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his, hus- but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. In these first six verses, Paul lays out three important sexual principles of marriage. In verses 1 and 2, we're given the first principle. And that first principle is... Sexual purity, sorry, sexual purity. In verse 1, Paul affirms a familiar Corinthian passage or a a slogan. 
it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Contrary to what some interpreters have thought, Paul here isn't advocating celibacy within a marriage or even condemning it. Rather, he's rejecting the notion of men using women for mere sexual gratification. Now, we've covered reasons why last week, so I won't get into it right now, but I will remind you of this. God gave sex as a precious gift to mankind and uses it powerfully to bond husband and wife together in a true one flesh relationship. Because of the physical and spiritual union that takes place during sex, a person who continues to be sexual promiscuous becomes less and less of a person as peace as a piece of his soul is stripped away with each encounter. Although Paul agreed men should not use women to fulfill their sexual needs, he had some reservations about completely advocating for it. You see, some of the Corinthians were using this slogan as a reason not to have sex in their marriages. So Paul qualifies it in verse 2 by saying that sexual abstinence is, for the most part, inappropriate in, wedding, in wedded couples. He clearly states, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her, with her own husband. Sex, as God designed it, is to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It should be good, exciting, intoxicating, powerful, and unifying. Now also notice that a key aspect of what he said here are the words, their own. You're not to have sexual relations with somebody else's wife or husband other than your own. Another thing to notice is the use of the singular noun wife and husband. This is to make it clear that God does not approve either of polygamy or homosexual marriages. The principle of sexual purity, therefore, involves a single, uh, involves a, a single, Christ, or single Christians abstaining from sexual relationships and married couples continuing to engage in sexual relations. In verses three and four, we're given a second the second principle of a Christian marriage, sexual responsibility. In verse three, Paul makes it clear that both husband and wife should fulfill their marital duties to one another. These duties include not just sex, but affection as well. In the New King James Version, verse 3 reads like this, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. So what he's saying is that it's the husband's duty to return the affection that she's due. If a husband has sexual relations with his wife, but without true affection to her, he is not giving his wife what she's due. Likewise, 
if a wife, it's a wife's marital duty to perform the physical or to return the physical intimacy, intimacy that he's due. If a wife purposely withholds sex from her husband, she's not giving her husband what he's due. Verse 4 is Paul's explanation as to why these duties must be performed. By saying that husbands and wives don't have the right over their own bodies, but to the other, he's making it clear that a married person, that married persons no longer control their own bodies, but must surrender their authority over to their spouses. Now, it's important to keep in mind that here he doesn't this doesn't justify a husband abusing or coercing his wife sexually or otherwise. And it also makes it clear that a wife shouldn't use sex as a tool of manipulation. God's point is that we have a binding obligation to serve our partner with physical and emotional needs, or with physical and, and emotional affection. When it comes to sex between a husband and wife, the act itself ought to be honored, and there ought to be respect for one another. And this is where communication comes in, and, it, it, and is key in a sexual relationship. The husband should respect the wishes of his wife, be willing to meet her emotional needs, and be understanding when she's not in the mood. And the wife should understand the physical needs of her husband and be willing to meet them even when she may not be in the mood. It's a balance there. And only both of you can figure out what that balance is. The principle of sexual responsibility in a marriage is therefore mutual. The husband has obligations towards his wife and the wife has obligations towards her husband. See, the emphasis is on giving, on I owe you, on I owe you instead of you owe me. In God's heart, sex is put on a much higher level than merely the husband's privilege and the wife's duty. In 5 and 6, Paul tells us the third principle within marriage, mutual sexual abstinence. Do not deprive, the, the, what, what he means by do not deprive in verse 5, should probably read, stop defrauding, that is cheating someone else out of what is properly theirs, his or hers. The only exception Paul will tolerate is if both partners mutually agree that for a very limited time, they will abstain from sex for a period of communion with the Lord. But again, it must be mutual and to grow closer to the Lord as a married couple. Now, once this period is complete, they must come together again as soon as possible to avoid temptation due to lack of self-control. You see, the longer a husband and wife withhold sex from one another, the easier it will be for either one to be tempted to have uh, their needs met somewhere else, whether it's the physical needs of the husband or the emotional needs of a wife. They will look for it somewhere else. The, the longer they abstain from, from 
from having sex with each other. Again, this is one of the biggest traps of the devil. And if he can break up a marriage, then he's won. He's done his job. Now, Paul makes it a point to say in verse 6 that abstinence is permitted within marriage, but it's not mandatory on those occasions. God does not command or even recommend abstaining from sex within marriage. But it can, but it can be done for a brief time for a specific spiritual reason. You see, like fasting from food and drink, the principle of mutual sexual abstinence is that it helps to hone one's focus on the one great desire, and that's God himself. Well, in the next couple verses, Paul addresses the benefits of being single, of being a single Christian, by using his own status as an example of purity and self-control. So let's go there. Verses Eight. We're going to be in verse 8. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. But, they do not, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. In these three verses, Paul specifically is specifically thinking and speaking of believers who weren't married or were previously married. Verse 7 offers the first hint of, verse, of what verse 8 will make explicit. Paul is currently single. And he likes it that way. He wishes all could share his enjoyment, but realizes that only some have that gift, while others are gifted for marriage. According to Paul, whatever a person's status, either content in being single or happily married, it's a gift from God. In verse 8, he speaks directly to the unmarried and widows who don't have this gift. The unmarried here refers to all categories of single people. These include divorced women and men and those who have never been married. Paul also emphasized widows here since there was a considerable social pressure on them to remarry. To remarry. Those in, these, in this category, he says this, it's good for them if they remain as I am. You see, Paul, again, at the time of this writing, was unmarried and considered himself in the same category as the unmarried and the widows. So as a result, he's able to speak from the heart because of his own situation. Here, he recognizes the benefits of being single which he will speak more on later on in this chapter. He wants them to know that it's good because single Christians have a greater tendency to be more focused on God and more available to do the work of God. Unlike today, in Paul's day, Jew Jews considered marriage a duty. 
to the extent that a man reaching 20 years of age without marrying was considered to be in sin. Unmarried men were often considered excluded from heaven and not real men at all. So what he wants to do is encourage them, encourage these single men and women by telling them it's okay, by telling them that it's okay. It's okay to be single. If you're single and you don't have a desire to get married, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. Don't let anyone ever convince you that, that there is. Don't let anyone pressure you, if you're single again, to do something that God hasn't called you to do right now. And don't be ashamed to tell others that as of now, God has gifted you with singleness. And if you're able to, explain why. Keep in mind, though, that just because he's gifted you with singleness doesn't mean that he won't, at a later time, gift you with marriage. You see, your gift of singleness might just be for a season. If it's his will, and at just the right time, he will bring someone into your life that will want to spend the rest of, that you will want to spend the rest of your life with. But for now, if he's gifted you with singleness, use your gift to bring him glory, to bring him glory and to bring him honor. Now, Paul also understands that some aren't gifted with singleness. Though Paul knew singleness was good for him, he would not impose it on anyone. Paul wished that they would remain single, but marriage was no sin. He goes on to recommend marriage to anyone with those desires and saw it as a legitimate refuge from the pressures of sexual temptation and immorality. He wants them to know that they should not feel guilty or bad because they have a desire to get married. However, if a married Christian is lacking self-control, they ought to find a marriage partner, partner so that they will no longer burn with desire. You see, I knew I'll give myself as, as an example. I knew from a young age that I wanted to get married. And as I got older and all these hormones started to hit, I knew that there was no way I can stay single for the rest of my life. So I prayed. And I prayed and I prayed to the Lord, <clears throat> Lord, bring me a good woman. I want to get married eventually and I want to just take care of her and and... I just want us to share a life together. And that's what I prayed for. I prayed, for. I prayed for him to bless me with a beautiful wife. So when I met Robin at the age of 17, little did I know that I would be marrying her five years later. Now the reason I mention this is to give you an example that some know at an early age whether, the, whether they're gifted or not with singleness. Now, I'm not sure if Robin would agree with this, but if the Lord were to take her home with him, I absolutely wouldn't have a problem if he gifted me with being single until he takes me home too. So after telling these Christians that marrying or staying single is something between them and God, Paul turns his attention back to married couples. 
So let's pick up in verse 10 and read all the way to 16. Verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, she must not divorce, he must not divorce her. Also, if a, any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Why, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husbands, husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. After answering their questions on the value of marriage and singleness, Paul now answers their question on marriage and divorce. In verses 10 and 11, Paul first addresses marriages where both partners are Christians. Here he begins by saying, not I, but the Lord. This points to Paul's awareness of Jesus' teaching on divorce, but in no way implies the apostles' own words were not inspired or authoritative. Now throughout verses 10 through 16, the words uh, the word translated separate divorce, um, or sep yeah, separate divorce and leave are used interchangeably. So depending on the verse you you're using or the, the translation you're using, um, these words are often mixed up, but for the most part, they mean the same thing. If there is a difference, it may be that a man was legally entitled to divorce his wife whereas the woman often had no recourse but to move out. So he first informs a believing wife that she is not to leave her husband. See, back then it was unusual for a woman to leave her husband, but it wasn't unheard of. Apparently there were some Christians at Corinth who wondered if it might be more spiritual to be single and break up an existing marriage for the case of greater holiness. In other words, they were thinking, I'll be more holy, I'll be more spiritual if I just break up with my, if I just divorce or leave my husband, my wife, I'll be a better Christian. Paul answers their question straight from the heart of the Lord. Absolutely not. In fact, he tells them that if she were to leave or separate, her husband, or from her husband, she was required to remain single the rest of her life or be reconciled to him. And down below in verse 39, he also adds, or until the death of her husband. Paul then applies the same principle to husbands as to wives and makes the important distinction 
that uh, makes the important distinction between one who might leave, separation while still honoring the marriage covenant, and one who might divorce. Now before I move on to the next group he addresses, I want to point out again that, there, that here Paul is speaking to married couples who are believers. So if you consider yourself a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and your spouse is too, then verses 10 and 11 would apply to you. The fact of the matter is that there's absolutely no reason besides abuse and infidelity for you to divorce your spouse. And I'll speak more on that in just a bit. But when you were married, when you married that man or woman, you made an oath before God that you would be with him or her in all circumstances, in every situation of life, until he or she dies. So as a Christian, you have a responsibility to uphold that oath for the rest of your life, not just to your spouse, but to God. If you have issues or problems, do whatever is necessary to work them out. And don't let anyone or anything drive a wedge between the both of you. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 says this, Therefore as God's holy or God's chosen one, chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving one another if any of you has grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Okay, so in verses 12 and 14, Paul speaks to Christians who are married to an unbelieving spouse. But before he even begins, he, he is making it known that Jesus did not teach on this specific point. So he's relying on his own sense as an apostle of Jesus, how God is guiding or inspiring him on this topic. Now, with all, new, uh, with all the new converts in Corinth, there was no doubt that many couples Usually there was just one person as, as, a, as a Christian. Some believers seem to have feared that sexual relations with an unbeliever would defile them. But Paul here disagrees and insists that if an unbelieving partner is content to stay, the believer must not initiate divorce. Verse, verse 14 supplies the rationale for Paul's insistence on preserving the marriage. A Christian spouse who remains faithful to his or her unbelieving spouse has a sanctifying effect on the other unbelieving family members and even unto the children. Now here, sanctified in this context does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved just by marrying the Christian. It simply means that they are protected from pagan values through the influence of the Christian members' exemplary morals. 
Don't ever underestimate the role you have as a Christian within your family. God can and will use you if you'll allow him to. Even if you're the only Christian, the only believer in your house, the Holy Spirit living within you will shine through you and out towards every member of the household. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure, reverent lives. And in verse 7 it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as your weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs with the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Consider it an honor that God is using you as a missionary in your own home to your spouse and to your children. And what I mean by that is if you're the only believer in that house, everyone else is unbelievers, God could be using you, God is using you as a missionary in your own home. And He wants to do a great work through you. You just have to allow Him to. You have to be open to it. You got to show these unbelieving family members what it means to be a Christian. And that also means being patient, being understanding, you know, not picking fights. I don't know. Again, that's, you know, you have to work that out, but what a great honor and privilege it is. In verses 15 through 16, Paul states what a believer ought to do if the unbelieving spouse divorces or abandons them. He informs them that if an unbelieving spouse physically and geographically, not just emotionally, abandons the marriage, the Christian partner was not compelled to try to prevent the separation. In this situation, the Christian is not under bondage to the marriage covenant. This means they are in fact free to remarry because God has recognized their divorce as a valid divorce. It says God has called you to live in peace. And what that means, it offers another reason for Paul's permission to let the unbeliever depart. You see, there's no guarantee that the non-Christian partner will ever be saved by staying. Not only that, but the constant ten tension introduced by a Christian spouse's split loyalty may cause the unbeliever to further resent God or the spouse. The encouragement here is that a Christian who is married to an unbeliever should know that with faith and with patience, they can trust God. They can look to Him, they can look to Him to work out their present circumstances, difficult as they might be. Now I realize that for some of you this message may be a difficult pill to swallow, just like it probably was for many of the Corinthians who were reading this, these words. 
But I hope you understand that everything written in this Bible, in this book, in God's Word, is for your benefit. God takes marriage seriously because He was the one that designed it. He was the one who created it. And He wants us to honor Him by honoring what He created, by honoring our marriage vows. Therefore, believers should be clear again about these three things. Firstly, if you're a Christian, you're not to divorce your spouse. Secondly, if you're, if you're a Christian spouse who remains, faithful, who's remain, who remains faithful to your unbelieving spouse, there is a sanctifying effect on the other unbelieving family members. And thirdly, if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then let him go. Let him leave. God has called you to live in peace. Now you're probably thinking, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what my wife or husband has put me through. How am I supposed to stay with someone who mistreated me and who I don't love anymore? First of all, you're right. I don't know, but I do know that God knows. If you've been cheated on, the Bible is clear that divorce is permissible. If you've been abused or are in fear of your life, I could make the biblical case as to why it's okay for you to separate or separate yourself and your children from that situation. Secondly, in our 20 years of marriage, Robin and I have been through a lot. I know what it's like not to feel love for her. And she knows what it's like to be around someone who has done and said some pretty horrible, vile things, some awful things. God shows us, God showed us that love is more than just a feeling. It's a lifelong commitment to be faithful and loyal to one another, even when our feelings disagree. The only reason we're still married is because of the miraculous work God did in both our hearts. He did a work in my heart and he did a work in her heart. Had he not done that, again, we probably wouldn't be married right now. And lastly, God sees what's in your heart and knows, he absolutely knows the motives of your actions. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. Other people may not understand why you're choosing to stay married or to separate. But whatever God has called you to do, make sure you're at peace with it. Don't, you can't fool God. He knows really what's going on. If me or Robin had listened to our feelings or all our friends or the advice from all these TV personalities on these talk shows or these magazines, we probably wouldn't be married right now. But if you're unsure what to do, I strongly advise that you seek counsel from mature Christians who have been through those situations. Talk to somebody. Let somebody know what's going on with you. 
You know, believe me, there's a lot of people, I've met a lot of Christians when we were going through our thing that we were able to talk to because they knew what it was like. And so our heart and desire now as a married couple is to minister to other couples that have been through similar or going through similar situations. We know that it's hard. We know that it's difficult. But if you trust and believe in God, if you really have that strong faith, you just have to continue to hold on and, and just ask Him to give you the strength to not give up. Because it's easy, and the whole world will tell you just to give up. But again, marriage is a serious thing. God honors it. God, I mean, He created it for a reason. And as I said, I know these, this, there are things here. Everyone is coming from different situations, different circumstances. Everyone has been through different things. Don't put yourself in a situation where later on you're, you know, you're going to have to answer to God and, and He's going to ask you, like, what happened? And He's going to know whether you're lying about whatever. So just, I, I, again, God here is, is, is saying, Take care of what you've got, as difficult as it is. And as I begin to close, let me remind you again of what this passage is saying. Regardless of the situation you find yourself in, single, married, divorced, or separated, you can still honor God by keeping and maintaining your vows, remaining sexually pure, and devoting yourself completely to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, yeah, this passage, again, is heavy. And maybe for many of us here, it, we have to truly examine our lives, our relationships, what's going on, Lord. I pray that everyone that is here, that is listening or watching, that is going through a difficult relationship, that you give them the answers they need, Lord. Surround them with people that will give them good advice, that will just help guide them on the direction they ought to go, not on what they should do, Lord, but just offer good biblical counsel. I also pray for those who are single, Lord, that you continue to strengthen them and what you've gifted them with. May they continue to honor you with their life with their whatever, with all their, with their hands, with their feet, may they, may their focus remain completely on you, Lord. For those who are again single and desire to be married, I do pray for their future spouses, Lord. Protect them, keep them safe, Lord, and and, and bring them soon 
to their future spouse. May we honor you in our marriages, Lord. May we honor you with our bodies. May we honor you with our entire lives. Bless us next time, Lord, as we fellowship, as we encourage each other, as we talk to each other. And thank you for what you've done. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.